Welcome to the first ever episode of True Crime and Spending Time. I'm Kirsty. And I'm Josh. And we are your friendly neighborhood true crime enthusiasts. We decided as a husband and wife in order to spend a little more time together that we would do what every couple does and that's create a podcast, right? So this is our podcast about true crime cases that have interested us over the years. We also want to touch base on some uh, true crime documentaries that we see. We want to talk about different true crime games and things that you can do as true crime enthusiasts, museums. Uh, Basically, we want to be the podcast that you go to for anything and everything true crime related. Okay, before we get into the episode, I want to give a little bit of background um, on why I chose this episode. Um, I've wanted to start a true crime podcast for years, and I knew that whenever I eventually made one that I would want to cover this case. This is a case that started and piqued my interest in true crime because it's one that there's so many what-ifs or questions still lingering even 24 years later. This very controversial case took place in a small town in Ohio where I was raised. Growing up, I always remember there being different speculations and theories on what happened, um, what could have happened, and, and everybody has their own ideas and thoughts on what really happened that night. Um, but through research and, you know, getting everything ready for this podcast, I... I'm still kind of where I was as a kid. Uh, I don't feel like I know any more than I did then. And I'm really not sure. What did you think? This was a really hard first case uh, for me because you had 20 plus years of experience uh, kind of dealing with this stuff, hearing different things in the community uh, and things like that. But this was my first time really hearing anything major about it or really diving into it. Um, even though you mentioned that it was the, the case that really got you involved and, and interested in true crime stuff. Uh, I never really dove into it like I should have until we started this. Uh, and for the record, we researched this and we researched more and more and more and more. We watched multiple documentaries. We looked for every newspaper article, court documentation, everything that we could find that we had access to. Um, and we're by no means detectives. Uh, we don't have any type of police background or anything like that. Uh, so when we do this, uh, just for the audience, I want everyone to know, we do this to make the best combination of facts that we can find consistently across all of these platforms. And that's what we are trying to present to you, uh, the people who we really want to thank for taking the time to listen to this. Um, so with that being said, are we ready to dive into the case? We are. Um, So this case starts in 1994, uh, where a very unlikely couple starts dating. They are um, introduced through a mutual friend while the gentleman was actually incarcerated for shooting his friend in the face. If I'm not mistaken, I believe the report was that he shot him in the face because he found him with his girlfriend. Is yes. that right? Okay. He shot him in the face. And let's just say, I just, I, I don't even know. Like, that is, 
that's rough. It, it, it's pretty bad. And I don't know. I mean, I, I, there are a lot of situations in life where, you know, sometimes you just got to be able to turn away. But uh, we'll find as we keep going through this, this guy just kind of doesn't have that ability, does he? No, he doesn't. And believe it or not, his charges are actually pled down to a misdemeanor. So he is actually released from jail. And that's crazy to me because with a misdemeanor, that means he still has the right to own a gun. Yes. Which is crazy to me because he can still legally keep the thing that he just almost killed someone with. Correct. But while he was incarcerated, um, the his lady friend was coming and visiting him. But when he was released from prison, they actually started dating. And they were a very unlikely couple that uh, people around town, they just quite, they didn't quite understand the relationship. Um, and I do want to say that through the reports, it was that it said that she did willingly visit him while he was incarcerated. Right. So she knew what she was doing. It's not like that she wasn't aware of kind of what had happened. Uh, of course, we don't know what type of thing that he had said to her, or what kind of circumstances that he said that the event of the shooting took place under, but whatever it was, uh, he was able to get this young lady who was known as a sweetheart all over town, people who knew her, people who we still know to this day that grew up with her and knew her have said she was the sweetest, most calm person. Um, so we don't know exactly what he said to convince her. He was probably a sweet talker. And he, he seems like that he could have been. I don't know. Um, but whatever it was, he was able to convince this sweet, you know, young lady that he was someone that was safe for her. Yep. So with that being said, this case is about Miss Clarissa Ann Culberson, also known affectionately by everyone who knew her in the community as Carrie. In 1994, Carrie Culberson started dating Vincent Doan. And he is referred to everywhere that I've seen as Vince. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, he went by Vince. Um, They had a very, in the beginning, one of the sources that we saw said that they had a very good relationship. Things seemed to be okay. What I believe probably was the honeymoon phase when you start dating and everything's all perfect. Well, things weren't perfect. They turned bad. Their relationship became very volatile and violent. And on multiple occasions, Vince actually assaulted Carrie. There are eight documented times from January 1994 until July 28, 1996, where he assaulted her and she had bruises, black eyes, cracked ribs, bruised kidneys, and and a skull fracture. Now, that's a lot of stuff that happened. Was any of this ever reported to the police? So, I don't think that any of those were reported. It wasn't until um, the final breaking point, um, which was 30 days before she went missing. And she actually filed charges against Vince because he threw a space heater at her, which resulted in five to eight staples. Some sources say five, some say eight. 
Yeah, I think I saw both of those numbers as well. Uh, the five, I think, was pretty consistent across most of the stuff that I saw. Uh, I think that I'd heard um, maybe her mother had mentioned eight in one of the interviews that we had done, but I think the actual documentation I found did verify that five stitches or five staples. I'm sorry, it was is what resulted in for whatever reason him throwing a space heater and it hitting her in the back of the head. Um, and you said there were eight documented cases? Yes. But they are, um, there's a website that is in honor of Carrie. And there is a timeline of the, um, the violent attacks on there. And there was eight listed on there. Yeah. And I know that her mom was involved every single time, take her to the hospital, you know, things like that. I mean, we have four daughters ourselves uh, and a son. So, I mean... If something like that were to happen to one of our kids, we're going to know every single detail. And every parent would. Um, her mom was just being a good mom at this point. I mean, she's just keeping track of these things and, and trying to keep an eye on what's going on with her daughter. Um, and you said that the last one happened on, I believe it was July 28th. Yes. Exactly 30 days before everything goes crazy. All right. So that brings us up to the date of August 28th, correct? The day that forever changed the Culberson, Doan fam- families, and rocked the village of Blanchester for years to come, even till today. Yeah, to this day, uh, people in the town can confirm that there is still a divide within the town about this case, uh, which is really interesting because it also caused just a little bit of a divide amongst you and I as we were going over some of the facts. It did. So, let's get started with the events on the night of August the 28th. Yes. So, we have a timeline here, and it is a crazy timeline. On August the 28th, Carrie, uh, either attended or played in a volleyball game. This source, Some sources say she done one thing, others say the other. Yeah, All th- we know, she was at a volleyball game. I know she was at a volleyball game. I think played in was the most common yeah. thing. Uh, I also think that that's what her friends testified, that they were playing in a volleyball game um, in a neighboring town or neighborhood uh, whenever they were out with each other and then they got done with the volleyball game and stated that they dropped Carrie off that night, right? Yes. So um, she was with, in a town 10 miles from Blanchester, she was with her friend Jessica Williams. And during the game, Vince actually shows up. Okay. And I'm assuming Carrie was not expecting him. Um, one of the reports that I read said that she could, she was seen. Say, shaking her head no at him several times. So don't this. nobody knows what they were talking about, but they assume that he was trying to get her to leave with him. Gotcha. Um, so she obviously stays till the end of the game with her friends. And they leave the game, and it is said that per Carrie's request, uh, she asked her friends to drive by Vince's house twice. Now, this is a statement from her friends that's actually very interesting to me. uh, Because 
there was never any clarification on why she was asking them to drive by the house. Uh, we don't know if she was afraid that he was waiting on her somewhere. We don't know if she just wanted to check in and see if he made it home okay. We really don't know her purpose for wanting to know where he was at. But they did confirm that both times that they drove by the house, that the black Mustang that he was driving was sitting um, at his place of residence. I honestly think that she was checking to see if she was home, if he was home, because she was afraid to go home. And and the Knott's events uh, kind of seem to lead more toward that direction. But there's a lot of speculation about why they supposedly drove by his house twice. Um, and some of the events that happened later on in the night are the reasons that people were questioning why was she driving by the house? Why did she want to know if he was home and things like that? Was it because she was afraid or was it because she really wanted to go talk to him about something? So. Oh, that's a good perspective, knowing all of these details. Yep. Okay. So... Her friends, after they have went past his house twice, they drop her off. So reports are that the friends dropped her off at approximately 1130. Yes. Correct? Yeah. Now, if we're kind of following the way that things took place, nobody notices that she's not home until 6 o'clock the next morning. Correct. And that's when her mother wakes up and notices that both Carrie and her car are missing. But her car was there because she was riding with her friends. Her car was there that night before she left, yes. Okay. So... Left for the volleyball game. Before she left, yes. So her car was there, her friends dropped her off, and then the next morning at 6 a.m., when her mother wakes up, there's no car, there's no Carrie. Yes, and the crazy part is between 11.30 p.m. and 6 a.m. the next morning, no one knows for sure what happened between that time. So where this gets really interesting is a lot of the facts that we know about this case took place in less than 12 hours. Right. At this point, we just know that Carrie was dropped off around 11.30. Her mom wakes up and knows that she is gone. Her car is gone. And her mom frantically, like any parent would, start searching because for Carrie, this was very unusual behavior. Um, Even though she was what, 22, she 22 years old. Yeah. She was 22 at this time. Um, and Vincent was 24. He was two years yeah. older than she was. And, and like any parent who notices unusual behavior from their kid, she is worried. She wants to know what's going on. Uh, I'd heard her state in multiple interviews that Carrie had a midnight curfew. And it was never clear on if that was only when she was younger or even as a 22-year-old young lady uh, living in her household. But she went on to say that even if Carrie was staying out somewhere or going somewhere else, that she would at least call every night. She had never failed to do this her entire life if she was going to stay out or if she was going to stay over to a friend's house or something like that. Which is actions of a responsible young adult. Correct. And and that that's why I said, I mean, she was truly a sweetheart. I mean, she seemed like just a great young lady. She was a cheerleader. She played multiple sports, uh, was active in multiple things in the community. So she seemed like the type of responsible young lady that would have done something like mm-hmm. this, uh, especially to prevent her single mother uh, from worrying so much and knowing how that she was and how, how protective that she was in that situation. Uh, yeah. I mean, because I know that I would be a nervous wreck if I woke up in my 
daughters or even our son was missing and they're supposed to be home. Yeah. And there's no note, there's no text message, there's no calls, there's no nothing. Because then in 96, cell phones were not as common as they are now. No, and, and they weren't as convenient to pack around. A lot of people didn't have them. If you didn't right. have them, they didn't have service a lot of places. So, I mean, right. you know, pay phones were a big thing still back during this time period. Yeah. For, for those of you that are a little bit younger that may be listening to this. Uh, and if you don't know what a pay phone is, you put in change and you <laughs> dial the number and hope for the best. Um, yeah. Go Google that. Yeah, but back to the case. So her mother's woken up the next morning, 6 a.m., and I know we've repeated that a few times, but we want to keep going back to that to to let you know that this is such a short time period from 11.30 that night to 6 a.m. the next morning. We're looking at, what, six and a half hours? And looking at that short time period, there's a lot that takes place that we're going to cover here in the next little bit. But her mother has woke up the next morning. She's looking frantically for her. She's going around the neighborhood. She's asking friends. She's asking neighbors. She's asking anyone that she can see or find that would possibly know where Carrie is or knew what she drove. Have you seen my daughter? Have you seen her car? Have, do you know where she was last night? Um, she's contacted the best friends at this point, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, I think at some point they actually help and get involved in the search. Uh, and everyone's looking for Carrie at this point. And then she goes to the local police department. Yes. And she does not get the cooperation she was hoping for. Uh, Carrie was 22 years old and it was less than 24 hours. So the police chief pretty much told her Carrie's an adult. It's been less than 24 hours. There's not a lot we can do for you. And that's such a horrible rule. Even with an adult, that they have to be gone for 24 hours because we are homebodies. We're home all the time. Like, if I go somewhere, you know where I'm going. I call you when I get there. I call you when I come back. Same thing with you. If you haven't contacted me or if something's not happened within just a short amount of time from kind of the expected time for us to be somewhere or to be back from somewhere, we're worried about each other. Oh, yeah. Because something's wrong. You know, some something happened somewhere that's caused a problem. I would want somebody to start helping me look for you in less than 24 hours. Oh, because yeah. Because if something has happened, 24 hours is a ton of time. Yep. For someone to be able to do something or to take you somewhere or for you to be in an accident or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know where that rule came from, from, but I mean, it's 2020. I mean, you think that that would be updated. I understand why, though, because runaways or, you know, somebody just not wanting to answer their mom's phone calls or Upset something like that. Yeah. or significant others or, I mean, there are tons of factors. And, and I do understand it. It's just there are so many cases and things that we've looked at over the years where that 24-hour time period was an absolute killer when it came to being able to try to find out what happened or who yep. did these things and stuff like that, especially in missing person cases that are never solved and the person's never found yeah if they could have done something in that 24-hour time period they could have probably solved a case yeah so back to the timeline um so her friends dropped her off at 11 30 through all of our research and all of the witness testimonies and all of that the next few hours is insane the amount of stuff that happens according to the witnesses at 11.40, 
10 minutes after her friends dropped her off. Carrie's neighbors said that she saw her car leave, pull out of the driveway with no lights on, and pull away from the house. Like she was sneaking away. Yeah, that that was that was kind of an odd explanation to me. Because she was very adamant about the fact that the car kind of sped off a little bit. And that the lights weren't on. It, to her, specifically appeared that she was trying to sneak off and not interrupt anyone, at least. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe she literally was just taking her, knowing her mother was asleep, into consideration or something like that. And she just wasn't ready to be done for the evening um, and needed to do one more thing. Because we mentioned the 12 o'clock curfew. Yeah. So it's still not a curfew yet. So she, if she is still following that as a 22-year-old young lady, she still has a little bit of time uh, to go out and do something or to run to a gas station or whatever. Yeah, and Blanchester is so small. You could absolutely do a lot of stuff in 30 minutes. Yes. Because you can get about anywhere in like 5 to 10 minutes. So, yeah. And I don't even know if that time there's a McDonald's there. I don't even know if they were open that late or if she was maybe going to get her something to eat. I mean, you just never know. Right. But then... At 12.30, Vince's neighbor testifies that she was awoken by loud noises outside her house. And when she looked out her kitchen window, she saw a young woman being chased by a man in her yard. And in her testimony, she said it was uh, a young lady that had been at Vince's house multiple times a week. And then even said that the young lady tripped in a pothole that was in her yard. And I think, if I remember correctly, she stated that while this was going on, um, that he became a little violent um, with the young lady. Now, I want to be clear on this. I think in the original testimony or the original witness statement, I'm sorry, to police... She had just stated that she saw a young man and a young woman, and she identified the car as a girl who was a normal visitor at his house. Yes. And then later identified the two individuals as Vince and Carrie, correct? Yes. Okay, I just I wanted to make sure that I got that clear. Yeah, she went to the uh, police department, I think, the next day or something. Like, after No, she saw it on the news. And then went to the police department the next day. And she said, that's, yes. the, that's the people that I saw, or that's yes. the young lady that I saw. Yes. And this, so I, I just wanted to make sure that I got that clear because I'd read a few different things and saw a few different things on that. But the original witness statement was just that she knew that. And as she witnessed this, she saw him, I believe, hit her in the face a couple of times. And which he said, I told you the next time I would kill you. And then he used a few expletives. Yes. At this point, his neighbor is terrified and she runs into the bedroom to wake up her husband. Because she did not have a house phone. Correct. She didn't have a house phone. So she was trying to go get her husband so that he could help with the situation or try to help the young lady and kind of dissolve the the situation that was going on outside. Because they were in her yard. Yes. And when they came back, there was no one. There was no young man, there was no young woman, and the car was gone. Yep. In that short, brief amount of time. And that was at 12.30, which was an hour after Carrie's friends dropped her off. Okay, 12.30, now we're at 1 a.m. A friend of Vince said that he showed up at his house after running out of gas and asked to use the phone. 
the house was 20 miles from Blanchester. And then while Vince was there, he called his dad, Lawrence Baker, and asked him what to do. Now, this statement here is where things really start to get a little bit interesting for me. Um, so we know at 1240, 1230, 1240-ish, yeah. Vince is leaving the neighbor's yard with yep. the car, supposedly, and with the young lady. All of them are gone. None of them are anywhere to be seen at that time. Right. We're talking 20 miles away. It's, it's a relatively decent distance. If you know anything about Blanchester and the surrounding area, you can easily make that. But depending on what direction this was, and we were never able to confirm this, there are a lot of little small town areas and things like that that you may have to drive through as well that it's not always that easy to get that distance in that short of amount of time. Correct? Correct. So this first witness statement kind of gets me for that number one the friend's witness statement the, the friend's witness statement because it, it somehow vince has managed to make it 20 miles during this time period because the neighbor can confirm that he was in her yard right around twelve thirty, and then 30 minutes later he is 20 miles outside of town but what the police confirmed that that absolutely. call was placed at 1 a.m absolutely so what is he doing that he has made it that far that quick that's why I said it starts to get interesting for me here because he it traveled does. a decent distance in that small area in a relatively short amount of time. Right. So that was at 1 a.m. And during trial, Vince's dad, Lawrence Baker, testified that after receiving the call that um, him and his wife, which was Vince's stepmom, actually drove by to check on Vince and that he was asleep on the couch. And that's at 1.30. Right. And then that's why I said this starts getting interesting for me here because he seemed to make it out of town pretty quick. And according to Lawrence's statement, he was back in town and asleep even quicker. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. The next few hours are just mind-blowing to me. Um, because this is where we get into some very, could be graphic details. At 3 a.m., you've got something that, you know, is a big turning point in the night. Mm -hmm. So Vince has a half-brother named Tracy Baker. Um, they share the same dad. Lawrence Baker is their father. And Tracy Baker is married to Lori Baker on the night uh, which technically, I guess this would be um, August the 29th because we're yeah we're past we're midnight past midnight. Point. Lori was at home and her twin sister was also there with her, um, which is her name was Vicky Watkins. At 3 a.m., Lori Baker testified that Vince showed up at her house and he visibly had blood on him. I believe that the way she described it is he was covered in blood on his chest and his arms and his pants. But he um, didn't have shoes or a shirt on. He did not have a shirt on. He did not have shoes or socks on. Uh, so it would have been his bare skin um, that she yeah. was looking at that she was claiming is covered in blood. Her sister, who was not supposed to be there at the time, and I guess her, Tracy, her husband's. Yeah, I, I, I guess Tracy was was not wanting uh, Vicky to be there for some reason. I don't know what all of that situation is. So she wasn't supposed to be there. 
But the sister confirmed that she knew that it was Vince that was standing at the door because he was easily identified by the Grim Reaper tattoo that she was able to see out of her niece's bedroom window uh, when she was woke up by the commotion. (sighs) And then both Lori and Vicky testified that Tracy and Vince allegedly leave with garbage bags and a gun. Yep. And they are gone and don't return back until almost six in the morning. Correct. And that's where things get a little even more interesting because when they return, Lori testified that Tracy told her to wash his clothes and him and Vince both showered um, oh, and we forgot to mention Vince showered before they left the first time. Yep. So Vince would have showered at their house twice. Mm-hmm. And Tracy showered. And she said that there was blood on Tracy's boots. There was blood. They said that both of their clothing, uh, both the clothing that they were wearing were covered in blood. Um, I guess they went and took showers uh, at that point, And I believe Tracy... Um, was reported to have told her to make sure that she washed the clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he told her a few other things. Um, she started asking some questions, you know, what's going on. And understandably so. I mean, him and his brother just showed up at the house covered in blood. What kind of questions would you ask? I mean, I can imagine how confused that Lori would have been at this point. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, they weren't giving her any details whatsoever. Nothing at all. Um, And I believe that it was even stated in her witness statement that uh, Tracy had mentioned that there was uh, marijuana that they had at the house that they were growing. And he had mentioned that she needed to get rid of it because the police would be coming, but not for what she thought they would be coming for. Right, right. So then they get back around 6 a.m., like you said. They shower. And at around... Well, she also said that Vince and Tracy, after getting ready and cleaned up, sat on the couch and had a conversation like nothing was wrong. They just had a casual, regular conversation. She said it didn't seem like anything was wrong at all. She said they were just talking. Um, Just seemed normal. Yeah. So sometime after 6.15, Vince leaves from Tracy and Lori's house to go to work. And he clocked in at around 7 a.m. But only 30 minutes later clocked back out for the day so he clocked in at seven clocked out at seven thirty. it's very unusual yeah i mean it, either he really just wasn't feeling it that day or something's going on i mean best that we can tell from witness statements he had been multiple places all night long but this is where it takes a little bit of a, a, a different turn because a witness at the salon where Carrie worked as a uh, nail technician, I believe, had stated that Vince calls around 1130, I believe it was that day. Yes. And asked for Carrie, which was unusual because while it was not unusual for Vince to call Carrie while she was at work, um, it's been stated up to 10 times per day sometimes she didn't come in until around two o'clock in the day so it would have been really odd for him to have called at that time of day to check on carrie oh 
I actually did not know that detail. Yes, uh, that was actually something that was stated by the owner. Um, I wish I could remember her name. There were just so many witnesses and so many statements. I know um, and, and we'll have all this stuff cited in yeah. our notes so that you all can go check this out for yourself. And we state later on how many witnesses there were. Yes. So that's what I don't understand. Is he, hours after she's disappeared, he calls to see to check in at her work of course but nobody knows anything is up by now right and the really interesting thing is is he calls and says that he's on his lunch at this point correct we know that he's clocked out for the day and i don't get a lunch that lasts that amount of time um no and you wouldn't <laughs> get a lunch after only working for 30 minutes for 30 minutes um, so that that's his claim at this time is that he's on lunch and just wanted to call and check on her. So after that. So we know that Carrie's mom woke up and around 6 a.m. realized that Carrie was not home. And she goes and searches town and talks to friends and neighbors and just sees if she can find her. It, I read somewhere that it was about 11 a.m. is when she actually went to the police department and tried to... Uh, do the missing persons report. So she has been looking for her for hours. Oh, you could assume point. she probably, I mean, I don't, I couldn't tell or didn't see anywhere how long she waited before she went looking, but I assume it probably wasn't long. No, the, the way that she talked um, in her statements, she pretty much woke up, went in to look into the bedroom of both uh, Carrie and her younger sister like she would every morning and noticed that Carrie wasn't there at that point. Uh, that's when she looked outside and saw the car was missing and then pretty much got ready and immediately after that. Um, so you're not looking at a long amount of time at all. So she's been, she's literally been looking for her for an extended amount of time at this point. That would be about five hours. Yeah, about five hours. So In a I'm, small town. Yeah, so I mean, she she has literally done her due diligence uh, as much as possible before she's went to the police department reportedly around 11 a.m. Yeah, and I think that's the time that I, I read. So, she's tried to report her missing. So, if your daughter goes missing and she has an on-again, off-again boyfriend, you know, I'm sure the mom probably did not know when they were together, when they were not together, and, you know, everybody knows that whole story. So, she, of course, goes to talk to Vince because that would be a a good starting point. She talks to Vince three times on August the 29th. Three times. And his story changes every single time. And this is really interesting to me too. And I know a lot about this is interesting, but like I said, I didn't know anything about The whole this thing case. is interesting. The whole thing is very interesting. So the first time, I believe, that she goes and talks to Vince, um, after she finally tracks him down, she says, you know, hey, do you know anything about Carrie, where she's at? And Vince states that he's not seen her for three days. Correct. Which we already know at this point to be false. Because Correct. he has been seen with her uh, both at the volleyball game, trying to get her attention for whatever reason. Uh, and he was seen uh, by the neighbor. Uh, arguing in her front yard. So we already know that his first statement is false. But his first statement is he hasn't seen her in three days. And at the time, her mom, which is Debbie Culberson, uh, I know we haven't mentioned her name before now, does not know that that's not the truth because it doesn't come out until trial 
all the other details. Right. But she did state that something about that just didn't feel right to her. That she didn't quite believe Vince when he stated that he hadn't seen her in three days. So the second time she talks to Vince, he finally says that Carrie was there the night before and that she appeared drunk and that he just didn't really want to talk to her. So he shut the door. Yeah, he said that she had honked multiple times, I believe, and... I don't think he ever opened the door because I believe his statement was, and I'll have to go back and double check it real quick, that he looked out the window and she appeared to be kind of waving around a little bit and had the appearance of being drunk. And and any of us that's ever seen anyone in that state, you kind of know they're just a little unstable, Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of what I think he explained to her during this he tried to convey yeah during this story i think that's what he what he was saying is that he was trying to say that he thought she was drunk and he didn't want to deal with her and just kind of blew her off and never actually had any communication with her which is a crazy story considering that you know their entire relationship um the third time that debbie talks to vince He finally says that Carrie was at his house the night before and that she wanted him to go drinking, but he refused. And I believe at this point, he stated that they kind of got into an argument about that. Correct. Because he was saying that he did not want to go with her. She was saying, oh, come on. And and like I said, this is Vince's story. So three different times that he's been asked by by Deborah, this is three different stories now. And and all three of these instances that he was relaying these three different stories in a very short amount of time, um, the way that it was explained, it was within the same day. Yes, it was all uh, on August the 29th. Yeah, that that's how... That's how I, I kind of saw that was that, that it was all within the same day and I saw that multiple times. So right now, to anybody who knows anything about true crime, there are red flags all over the place when it comes to Vance. And I know that we, we've went about relaying all this information kind of out of order, but it's because we wanted you to see the craziness over such a short amount of time. And now we can go back and fill in some of the gaps for you. Uh, because after the information that we have from, from Debbie about what happened, everything gets kind of crazy. There's no exact timeline on anything. Uh, we were able to find a few dates. We were able to find some approximate times. I don't know. I was never able to find, and you may have in your research, I was never able to find a definite time that the police actually started to take this seriously and get involved in it. Um, No, I mean, I have dates on when they done certain things, but no, I don't. That's a good segue um, because... Debbie talked to Vince and tried to file the missing persons report all on August the 29th. It was not until September the 3rd that we hear that the police actually done anything. Right. That's the first report that we have. Now, they may have very easily done some things before then. And they really didn't even do anything on this day. uh, This is just the first actual confirmation. Uh, There are reports of different searches from people in the community and things like that. And I do believe that there was some police involvement in that. I just don't know to what extent. I don't right. know if it was local police officers volunteering their time because this is a small town and they were just assisting in the search. Or I don't know if this is, was something that was actually organized by the local police department. But there were searches for multiple volunteers 
before this. Uh, her best friends and her mom were going around. They were stapling flyers up on telephone poles uh, and things like that, trying to find anybody that would have any information on what was going on. And, it, and Davey has said on multiple documentaries that she pretty much had to be her own investigator because mm-hmm. from the beginning, the police did not take it serious. I think, was it her that said that the police, the police chief told her or asked her, why does she keep going back to Vince? And instead of it being, let's help, it was like, why is she going back? Yes, it, it did. It later came out um, in a court case that when she originally had approached him about this, um, that he did point out she is an adult. Uh, she could be anywhere. Maybe she just decided to go somewhere for the night or something like that and didn't tell you. And then he informed her of the 24-hour stuff, and she was trying to, to relay that this is not right. Something is wrong here. And they had brought up, I guess, the conversation about the relationship between the two of them Um because one thing that I read stated that she had actually said, you may want to look into Vince Dome. Mm-hmm. And I think his reply was at that time, why does she keep going back to him or why does she keep going back to that? And I know I'm not quoting the reply exactly, yeah. but basically, I mean, he was trying to say, I don't know why she keeps going back to this guy. Why In a sense, the police chief was kind of victim blaming. He, he was kind of shrugging the situation off. I mean... She had just pressed assault charges on Vince 30 days before this. Yeah. And that was filed with the police department, and that was on record. So he should have known to have taken this seriously. Oh, yeah. And this is something about this case that really, really just kind of gets me because there were so many documented cases at the hospital of things that had happened to her when she went for that. And there was a clear case in the assault charge that was also documented at the hospital. And and let's not forget, he shot his friend. Yes, and I mean, he has a violent history at this point that is documented, and this still is not being taken seriously. And a lot of it is aimed specifically at Carrie. Yes. And she is missing. So that's just something that I just, I just can't with the police chief because... From the beginning, he just did not take it serious. And I, deep down in my soul, feel like if he would have took it serious, that maybe there could have been a different outcome. Maybe. Even not even found her, I mean, not even found her alive, but maybe they could have recovered her body or something. Or maybe if they would have took some of the stuff serious beforehand, they could have prevented this altogether. Yeah, I mean, <sighs> but a good segue for that would be the next big thing in the case. Yes. And that takes place on September the 3rd, 1996. And if you remember, the last where we were at was on August the 29th. So on September the 3rd, Lawrence Baker gives local law enforcement permission to search his junkyard in a pond. And just to to verify, Lawrence Baker, because we've only mentioned this, I think, one time, just so everybody remembers who he is, that is Vincent Doan's father. Correct, who owns... Um, I think a couple junkyards, one of which was in town in Blanchester. And then this one must have been kind of out in the country or something because it had a pond near it or something. Yeah. Lawrence gives law enforcement permission to search the junkyard and the pond. <laughs> Both a cadaver dog and a bloodhound hit on something in the pond. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, this this wasn't a coincidence by any means. No. I mean, that, that, don't get me wrong. There, there are situations where sometimes there are other things that maybe a dog will hit on that makes sense. In this particular case, the claim is by the police department was that the bloodhound specifically had carry scent. Yeah, I mean, they're not going to take it out and not have something that it's looking for. And it hits on this pond. And so does the cadaver dog. That's what gets me. So we have two dogs that are trained to deal with these specific things that are hitting on this pond. Yeah. So I'm sure that they went ahead and rubbed it off, placed guards, drained the pond. I'm sure something happened, right? Oh, yeah. Except it didn't. Instead of draining the pond. Instead of placing a guard. Yeah. The Blanchester Chief of Police, Richard Payton, called off the search after a bloodhound and a cadaver dog hit on the pond. And this is this is one of the biggest points in this entire case. Um, this is the most one of the most mind blowing, boggling things that happens because he called off the search, but Lawrence Baker was standing right there when he called off the search and said, Everyone go home. We're not going to have anybody look after the pond. We're not going to rope it off. We're not going to drain it. Tonight. He did clarify. So he said just tonight. to clarify, he said tonight. He did say tonight. But he could have at least had somebody watching the pond and not say it in front of the prime suspect's dad. So he called off the search that night. He didn't have anybody watching it, didn't have it roped off. Well, when the Clinton County Sheriff's Department hears about this, they are visibly and clearly upset because Peyton did not do what he is trained in in office to do. So they take things over themselves. Yeah, I mean, the actual statement from the prosecuting attorney was that he could not repeat the words that he had said to Chief Peyton during the conversation because of how angry that he was over the negligence uh, that took place in this particular situation. I mean, there was absolutely no excuse for this. And this is a major turning point because when the Clinton County police get involved in this the next morning, they actually come in themselves rope everything off and immediately start draining the pond and that's when they find something very very interesting when they drain the pond they find footprints leaving the pond footprints in the mud and then footprints in a grassy area that is leaving the pond yes and the very unfortunate thing about this is footprints in a pond can last a maximum and best condition of about 12 hours. So these footprints have not been there that long. I mean, they literally, that night the search was called off. They find out about it and come in very first thing the next morning. And we know that maximum footprints can only be there about 12 hours. So it's not like someone was out waiting in the pond looking for something three days ago or four days ago before any of this stuff ever happened. This is something that had to take place overnight because if not, the footprints wouldn't have been in the pond anymore. But you know what? Had someone been there? Absolutely. They would have known what happened. Absolutely. So that is one of the key things that I just always sticks out in my mind is what would have happened if they would have drained the pond that night? What would they found? 
would they have found anything? I mean, could there have been clothing? Could her body have been there? I mean, her car couldn't have been in there because you would have visibly saw the tire tracks coming out of there. Yeah, it was just a there. small pond. Yeah, it was a small pond. But what, was, what were the dogs hitting on? They were hitting on something. Absolutely. So that, to me, is just some of the most damning things that, you know, throughout this case. Because it's on his dad's property. It's not like it's, you know, just some random pond. It's a property that he him and his family would know very well. At this point, all this information starts coming out about the case. Carrie's disappearance, the search at the pond is public knowledge at this time. I mean, there are multiple things that are known, and there are multiple witness statements saying that this small town of a population of about 4,000 people is divided right down the middle. Mm -hmm. This situation literally tore this town apart for a decent amount of time. I mean, some people to this very day. Yep, that's right. So, sometime after the pond incident, we don't have an exact date, um, but Vince was arrested for driving on a suspended license and then released. We don't know how long he spent. We don't know any of the details. We just know that he was arrested and in jail uh, due to driving on a suspended license. That doesn't sound seem like it's relevant right now, but later it's very, very relevant. Six months after the pond incident, Vince is, on March 21st, 1997, Vince is actually arrested again, but this time it's for four counts of kidnapping. Yeah. Four counts, and I'm sure somewhere that there is public record what those four counts are, but I never dove into it because five days before his trial was slated to start, they actually added two more charges to his court case. They did. They added two counts of aggravated murder without physical evidence. And this is where this really gets interesting for me. Um, The two separate counts that they charged him with, the first count was based around the idea that Vince had murdered her because of the assault charge so that she would not be there to testify for those. The second uh, aggravated murder charge that they had placed on there was based around the idea of he had kidnapped her and then killed her later at some point. And those two charges are the big key things that I really wanted to focus on because you've heard many times, you know, nobody, no crime. I mean, that, that's been a, a saying in movies, that's been a saying in courts, that's been a saying in multiple situations over the years, and they are attempting to charge him on two counts of murder with little to no physical evidence. All the, the evidence, evidence was circumstantial. It's circumstantial. I mean, at this point, uh, we don't even know if Carrie's actually dead. Uh, and that's something that they can't really prove. So the fact that the prosecuting attorney would choose to add this on with such a short amount of time before the slated trial date really, really, really got my attention in this case. Yeah, and in the in our research, they literally said they threw everything against the wall and hoped that anything would stick. Yeah, I mean, the, the detective and the prosecuting attorney actually both stated 
that they knew that this was a long shot and they were terrified to take this risk because in the event that he's found innocent in this case they can't retry him even if they find her body and have all the evidence in the world Uh, so this was a really really risky move on part of the prosecution um, when it came to adding these to the trial right so trial starts on july 21st 1997 there are how many did we say? There were 51 50. yep. witnesses yep. that took the stand. 23 for the prosecution and 28 for the defense. That's a lot. That is a ton. And and that's why some of these things, we we don't have the people's names listed. We will provide you with the information in the notes where that you can go and look at these names and look at these uh, exact witness statements and things like that. But... There were so many witnesses in this case, uh, friends and people in the community uh, testifying to different things that they had saw take place as far as violent encounters uh, between Vince and Carrie. Uh, Multiple witnesses from the night of, which we have talked about, uh, seeing her car drive off uh, from her house and then seeing the argument that took place. Uh, the witnesses talking about phone calls and uh, Lori and, and Vicky being two of the big ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is a really major witness that mm-hmm. comes out for the prosecution. Yep. And you remember we told you that Vince went to jail for a short amount of time for driving on suspended license. This particular testimony was probably the individual most damning thing that came out in the entire trial because of what Vince's cellmate, while he was in jail for driving on a suspended license, testifies that Vince said to him. He basically... Uh, and, and I'm paraphrasing, and you will be able to see the exact statement, but he, he goes on to say that uh, Vince had mentioned that Carrie was unfaithful and that when women were unfaithful, you needed to handle that. And he said that he had or he would lay in bed and think about killing her a hundred times before he would actually do it. And they took this as a confession to the cellmate that he he was admitting to this. And that's how his cellmate took it and that's how he testified it. He testified that he felt that Vince was owning up to murdering Carrie at this point. And when you take that and you put it with three other witness statements that were really, really huge in this. Um, You had the neighbor that saw the argument, which puts Vince being the last person that saw Carrie Mm -hmm. that we know of. And that's Vince's neighbor. And and then you take the cellmate, and then you take the two sisters who saw Vince there covered in blood and, and things like that. Those witness statements were really, really huge when it came to this, this trial, because as far as physical evidence, there really wasn't any. Right. But what the prosecution was able to do with witnesses was show Vince's violent past, show events that were witnessed the night of, things that Vince had said to people in jail, and things that, that supposedly took place that night that they were actually able to convict Vince of aggravated murder. Yeah. On August the 4th, 1997, the jury deliberations began, and they deliberated for three days. August 7th, 1997, Vince Doan was found not guilty on count one of the aggravated murder murder charge, which pertained to the assault charge that Carrie had 
pressed on him. And then he was found guilty on count two, which speculated that at some point he kidnapped and killed her. Now, for me, this, I think, is where we kind of are divided a little. Let me say first, I believe from everything that we have researched, everything that we have heard, people that we have talked to that knew these people personally at a young age, um, and hung out with them and went places with them. Vincent seemed like he was a troublemaker from those accounts. He seemed like from the things that he'd done to Carrie, he was not a good person. It was a abusive relationship. That There's never an excuse for that for any reason. And that being said, I believe that he is guilty of doing this. However, I'm shocked at the fact that they found him guilty in a jury trial because of the lack of evidence. That's where I'm torn on this case. I believe they caught the right guy. I'm glad that he is spending time in prison for this. But the lack of evidence in this, the lack of a body, the lack of knowing what actually happened, Uh, We talked about all the witness statements from the prosecution, and there were tons of witness statements for the defense of people claiming that they had saw Carrie in days after her disappearance. And one of those really kind of struck me just a little bit, um, which was that in Maysville, Kentucky, a man and a woman were driving down the road and they saw a young lady hitchhiking, uh, that the witness claims after seeing Carrie's picture was Carrie. And what struck me about this particular witness statement was that the young lady was hitchhiking in Maysville because she had been driving and her car had broke down or ran out of gas one. And that the young lady had a black eye or some bruising on her face. That one struck me because we have a witness statement the night before saying that Vince had hit her in the face. And that one really just kind of got me. That's one of those that you go, okay, this is the most believable thing that I can find out of all of this. And is it possible that maybe they got into an argument that night and she took off and was driving angry or just trying to get away from him because of the things that he had done to her and then her car did break down and she was hitchhiking, trying to get back to somewhere where that she could get help or where she could call someone. And then something happened to her. I don't know. Like I said, I, I preface this by saying I do think that he's the guy. I do think he's guilty. It's just the lack of evidence in this case makes it hard for me to believe that they were actually able to find him guilty objectively. With nobody. With nobody. With no physical evidence. Without knowing if she was dead, how she had died. It's just a really kind of hard pill to swallow when you look at what was there. And when when you told me about this case and you told me that he was convicted with no body, I was expecting so much overwhelming substantial evidence that it painted such a clear picture that even without the body, even without knowing what had happened to her, that it was just so clear cut that he had did it. Based on witness statements and things that were saw that night, I can believe that he did it. I just don't know if I was one of those jury members, if I could have, with clear conscience, voted that he was guilty of this. And I I get that. I understand that. It's just that I come from a completely different perspective on this because my entire life, I've just always heard, he done it, he done it, he done it. Vince killed her, he done it. 
he done it. He's in prison because he done it. They didn't need a body because he done it. And I, I get why, because any true crime enthusiast is going to say, how did they convict without a body? How is he sitting in prison without a body? And I, too, I mean, I deep down in my soul believe that he is the reason that she has never been seen. Um, because I feel like in 24 years, if she was still alive, something would have came up. Somebody would have saw her. She would have maybe wanted to talk to her mom. I mean, she didn't have a bad relationship with her mom, so it's not like she would have cut off all ties with her. Right. I mean, I understand how she could have been trying to run away from him. But, but I mean, she, she seemed to have, from every account that we have, she seemed to have a really good home life. She had a lot of friends that she was really close to. Oh, and said so her and her mom were, like, best friends. Yeah, I mean, there, there were multiple statements of it was almost more like a, a best friend-sister type relationship yeah. between her and her mom. And I fully agree that something has happened. And I fully agree that I believe he's responsible based on the violent past that he has documented against him and the things that were witnessed that night. I just don't know that I can say I feel like that there was enough to convict him of this, though. I, I think that I would have felt better if the prosecution, even without the body, if they waited a little bit longer and tried to find anything else, anything. Because there are tips that have come in since then that have checked out. I mean, I think it was almost a month or or a month exactly after her disappearance that they found a car that matched hers in mm-hmm. the Ohio River that later turned out not to be her car. Um, and... I think that it was quite some years later that they were actually doing a, a memorial for her. What were they, uh, placing a statue? Or? Placing a statue outside the Blanchester Police Department. And I believe that they got a tip at that point uh, mm-hmm. that had mentioned a pole barn uh, located on the property of someone that was either a relative or friend. Connected um, somehow. That, that was somehow connected uh, to Vince Doan and the Baker family. And when they went out, uh, there were multiple cadaver dogs that actually hit on things. And they got a search warrant and they searched and they found some things. They found some hair samples and a sock and a t-shirt um, that Carrie's mother identified as her shirt uh, that was 15 feet underground, under cement, in a pole barn. Yep. Where that tip came from, how that shirt got 15 feet deep. Oh, so many questions around that. But there have been some different things that came out throughout the years, and I just wish that the prosecution would have waited and not took a chance on it. Because with the limited evidence that they had, if he gets by with this, if they find him not guilty, they've lost their shot. Oh, yeah. And he gets off scotch-free. And I feel like if he would have had a better defense team he would have been able to beat those charges and then a violent man would have been back on the streets. Absolutely. And and unfortunately, something like this would have happened to someone else. I mean, I believe it was two weeks after her disappearance that he had already had another girlfriend. Yeah, moved in and she eerily looked like Carrie. Like she was mistaken for Carrie. Yes. That's how much she looked like her. And she had like similarities in the things that she liked and what she was doing and... It was really crazy. Yeah. Now, I don't know what really happened to her. And I wish for her mother and for the sake of of her family and friends that they could find her. I mean, I couldn't imagine going this long without knowing 
where one of our kids were. You know, I mean, it's it's it literally it's heartbreaking to think about. Um, so I wish to this point that something would have happened so that they could have some type of closure from this. And the most one of the heartbreaking things for me is was it the prosecutor who told Debbie he said you know you kind of have to admit that she's dead because if I can't convince you she's dead I can't convince a jury absolutely could you imagine being a a mom to have to sit there and hear someone say that to you it's like man you You have to admit she's dead before we can yeah if if you're still looking for for your your daughter that's missing if you are not giving up on her even though we don't have any clear-cut evidence saying that she's dead, if you're not willing to let that go, how are we going to convince somebody else that he actually did this? Ugh, I just, I can't imagine. No, no, such a heartbreaking thought. Now, there's so much that went wrong in this case. I mean, from start to finish, and we literally, if we wanted to tell every detail, it would have to be a two- or three-parter. Because we have went on, you know, kind of long, and... And that's not even including all the details of everything with Vince's family and just everything. Because we could go on for a long time just based on the things that didn't happen in this case, or at least not that we know of. I mean, we know his dad owned at least a junkyard, if not multiple junkyards. And were those ever searched? I think that he gave them permission, but I don't know. And, and in a moment, I would like to get into my theories on yeah, this. Yeah, that, that's that's what I'm leading up to here because <laughs> this, this is an interesting theory that, that came from multiple people in the community. And it makes perfect sense when you figure this stuff out. I mean, it, yeah. I could see it happen. It, so there was another podcast that covered this case. And she read about this on Reddit, and she just was so skeptical about it. But it's true. Lawrence Baker owned a junkyard in Blanchester, literally like one street over from Main Street. And he had a lion watching over and protecting his junkyard. A lion. This absolutely blew my mind. Had I not known the witness that confirmed this for us myself, I probably still would question this. But I mean, I heard that my entire life. Could you imagine being a kid? I was a kid and we didn't, I didn't know that he didn't have it at the time, but it was, we always, you know, talking about an elementary school. I mean, there's somebody here that has a lion. And I'm, as a kid, I'm like, oh my gosh, is this thing, what if it gets out? Yeah. And at the point that you were a kid, I think he'd actually removed it from the junkyard and took it out of the country. Yeah, but that was still things about the case that each generation passed it on. So growing up, I heard about these exotic animals, but Maybe by the time I was around, he probably did still have it in the country junkyard. Yes. But it just wasn't in the Blanchester. I don't know all the details. But Lawrence Baker owned a, a lion, and it was on his junkyard. And the witness that we both personally know said that when she was in high school, they actually would go and look at the lion through the fence. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, could you imagine? That would be a sight to see. It, it's not one of those things that, you know, as a kid you hear or see this loud noise and you're like, oh, that sounds like a lion. And then the rumor spreads that it's a lion. No, there were actual eyes that saw this lion guarding this junkyard like a junkyard dog would. So I mean, why do you he, need a lion? I don't know. And I mean, at the time, I guess owning exotic animals was not illegal. Correct. So... But I mean, it's like, who thinks I'm going to get a lion? My theory, I honestly, deep down, 
think that Vince and her were fighting in his neighbor's yard. I think that he began to assault her and he accidentally killed her. I don't know if he purposely did it. I think that he probably was very angry and then he accidentally, he went too far. And that's what, you know, violent offenders do sometimes. They go too far. And then I feel like he called his dad to see what to do. Dad said, get your brother. And that's what the the guy testified to said go get your brother and then he goes and gets Tracy they get the garbage bags and I think they fed her to the lion and that's not if you told me that you were going to give me a theory that included her body being eaten by a lion in Blanchester Ohio I would have thought that that was the craziest thing that you could have possibly come up with except we know the lion was real we know something happened to her we know that there was a disagreement that night and I know that it, it's been speculated and rumored around town for years that that exact event is what took place. That however he killed her, that her body was fed to the line and that somehow her car was taken care of with one of the junkyards. Yeah, he had, he could have crushed it. He could have... Yep. I mean, that, that's, that seems to be a running theory. They had the means to do every bit of it. And I I know for a fact I'm not the only one that has that theory because our source had that theory as well. And that's a theory that other people in town have. And it's such a far out theory, but it's not in this case. No, and that that was confirmed that it wasn't just her in the community that felt that way, that that was the kind of ongoing theory amongst a lot of people. And... I thought long and hard about this because I knew we were going to kind of discuss theories on what potentially happened. And mine is a lot the same as yours, except a few little things. There were some details about the case because of how much stuff there is and how long we've already ran into talking about this that we decided to leave out because of how much they actually affected the case. But we can confirm based on police records that there was a phone call from the Ohio River uh, on one particular night not too long after her disappearance um, that the police were able to trace and there was also a witness that stated that uh, Vince had showed up at his house and had requested a car ramps and given the case that we're looking at that's kind of an odd request Uh, the friend said no I don't but I know someone that has a some type of a tow truck or something to that effect that you can borrow if you need to and his his statement was that Vince um, had supposedly said you know no I'm just kind of working on something I don't really need to get a lot of people involved in it something along those lines but my theory is along the same lines as yours is I, I believe that he got carried away and accidentally killed her because of the violent nature that he's he's been known to have. Um, and I believe that somehow either her body or her vehicle was dumped in the Ohio route because they, they were able to trace that phone call to his dad from a pay phone. If that's the case... It may never be found. I could see her car, not her body. I don't know. I mean, the Ohio River runs a long, long, long way. It would have been found eventually. Maybe. They actually did find some bones there um, that they thought may have been something, and they came across those bones from the phone call, uh, trying to search for her vehicle, trying to search for her body. Uh, They were later identified as animal bones. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe that something is in the Ohio River. Something. I don't know what. 
And it's just a really big coincidence that a month after her disappearance, they find a car that matches hers in the Ohio River. But we don't know how they verified if that was or wasn't the car. Did they go by the license plate? Did they go by the VIN number? Did they go by things that could have been changed? Or was there a way to definitely tell without a shadow of a doubt that that wasn't her car? I don't know. Oh, because his dad owns a junkyard. Because his dad owns a junkyard. And could change license plates. Absolutely. There's so many things that they would have available to try to manipulate some of the things that you would normally identify a car by. That's a good theory. So I don't know, but I believe that something, maybe even something that they use, what did they use multiple garbage bags for? Uh, there are multiple terrible, horrifying theories on, on that situ- situation. I don't really want to get into all that. But what could they have placed in the Ohio River? I believe something's there. I just don't know what it is. And I don't know if it'll ever be found. It's not been found in 24. Uh, next year will be the 25-year the anniversary of, yeah. of her disappearance. So I don't know. But that's my theory is that something wound up in the Ohio River and that something was in the pond that night that they were able to get rid of by some other means. I'm not sure it was the line. No. But by some other means, they got rid of whatever evidence was on the property at that time. That's what I thought. <sighs> and see, it's... The sad thing is, is we may never know. And very rarely do you ever hear of a body or evidence never showing up. Never. Never. And my thing is, is if the Blanchester Police Department would have done more, they could have searched the junkyard. And they could have, any crazy far out thing, they could have checked. Like, they could have checked the line out. I mean, I know they don't want to really check the line out, but they could have figured something to do you know what I mean like any and everything they could have looked into but literally the police chief just <sighs> so yeah do you want to talk about I, what happened I'll, I'll talk chief? about the follow-up on some of the stuff that we've discussed briefly uh, and then we'll we'll try to wrap this up so we know that Vince's brother Tracy uh, had also been witnessed you know helping him with something from 3 to 6 a.m. Uh, the the day after her or the morning after her disappearance or the last time that she was saw. And Tracy was actually found guilty a year later of obstruction of justice and her two counts of obstruction of justice to be more specific and one count of tampering with evidence. Also attempted to charge the father, Lawrence, with the same thing. However, Lawrence was acquitted due to lack of evidence. Tracy actually spent a total of eight years uh, in prison for this and was released in 2005. Now, Chief Payton, who is one of the biggest factors in this entire case uh, and the Blanchester Police Department, the way that he handled this, eventually dereliction of duty charges were brought against him. Uh, by the family, uh, rightfully so, in my opinion. Right. And just for the record, there are tons of things that can be included in that. Uh, It can be everything from recklessly failing to perform your duty as a police officer. Uh, It could also include losing a prisoner. I mean, there are tons of things that are listed in this. Uh, Even failure to control a prisoner can be listed as dereliction of duty if something bad happens because Mm -hmm. of your inability to perform that task. But he was brought up on charges of this, and unfortunately, nothing happened. The chief was allowed to plead no contest, which for those of you that don't know, means that he was not disputing 
the things that they were saying about him, but he was also not pleading guilty. And he was allowed to plead no contest in this case, and he actually retired and retired to Florida. Um, So Hmm. he actually got out of this without anything as far as time served or or anything. Let me take that back. I think that there was uh, something to do with... um, I can't remember if it was like time served or something like that with jail. I had a lot of details that were on it. I literally read through the actual court documentation on this, but nothing that was anything like it should have been. I mean, someone who had called the father, which was another detail that we left out, he called Lawrence Baker to let him know that they were coming back to drain the pond. Yeah. That time- showed up in his case. Uh, when when that was going through, they actually confirmed that phone call during this case, and he called him to let him know, hey, we're, it's going to happen. They're going to come back and drink. We are looking at Vince for this. Like there were different conversations where that he's saying, hey, your boy is the main suspect in this, and we are going to be doing this stuff. Small town, everybody knows everybody. Small you got town. connections. I mean, Lawrence was the guy that towed, broke down, or repossessed vehicles for the police department. Shut up. So they had a connection. I didn't know that. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. So they were friends. So there were so many things when it came to Chief Payton that made me feel like that the consequences that he got out of this were just not enough. No, not at all. Like, every time his name is mentioned, I just have to roll my eyes because he literally got away with his inability to do his job. He took a job to protect and serve, and he failed miserably. Yep. Yes, he did. So, so for him, he was the biggest... Um, What's the old saying? Crawl in my throat, so to speak. Like that one just, that one gets me. I can't. There's nothing about the way that his situation was resolved that seems right to me on any level. Oh, and he got to retire to Florida. He got to retire to Florida. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, I read through the actual court documents. There may have been something like 90 days in jail or it was just a, a small amount of time and some type of a fine, I believe, that he had to pay. Please don't quote me on that. I'm not stating that as fact. I'm just trying my best to remember. Yeah. From the research that I did, um, and I can, I will make sure that I place that in our uh, notes for the podcast, so that you can go look at that because it gives great detail on a lot of this stuff when it comes to actual court documentation. And there's so much more that we've not covered, and and no. I hope that you feel like that we've done our due diligence. Uh, because of how important this case is to you. I know. I feel like I could literally just sit here and talk about this for days and days and days. because We literally have. I know. Because for me, it's like I'm a detail person. And all of these details are important. But we can't keep everybody here for two hours. Yeah. I mean, for those of you, you know, that are at home, I mean, we have pages of notes that are spread out in front of us. We have tons of websites and podcasts and different things that we found different pieces of information from that we were later able to confirm that we have went through over the last week or so and have spent so much time uh, because this was something that's so important to her and so important to me because there's something that we kind of want to talk about or I'll let you make a statement about that's close to both of us um 
that we want to kind of mention briefly, but we wanted to make sure that we tried to do the best that we could with this case with the time that we put into it and hopefully something that you can all listen to and enjoy. Um, but on a little more serious note. So this case, it all it goes back to the issue of domestic violence. Domestic violence is a very serious and just close thing to my heart um, because it's it's something that a lot of women in the United States deal with and in this case you have Carrie who she at one point she loved Vince then she thought she needed to fix him I feel and then she started to fear him and then things started to get a little muddy and it started to just did she love him did she fear him and her mother tried to help her but she was too far in and she couldn't get out until it was too late and that just tugs at my heartstrings because she had so much potential but Vince's inability to let her go and not possess her I feel like really just it just you know sealed her fate yeah I mean if if anyone listening to this knows someone or if you are a victim of domestic violence there are multiple helplines that that we can post in the notes. There are police departments. Reach out to a family member, to a friend, someone that you can trust that's going to have your back. A shelter. A shelter. And, and get yourself out of that situation. Too many times domestic violence cases wind up being something else. Uh, whether it's a disappearance, whether it's murder, whether it's some type of physical or psychological damage that you just can't get past and there's no reason for anyone to ever have to stay in that situation so please if if you're listening to this if you are someone if you know someone do whatever it takes to prevent them from having to be in that situation Um, even if you have to fight even if you have to constantly argue with them and stay on top of them and tell them that there is something better in life that's what you do be a debbie culperson absolutely absolutely you stay on top of them until the situation resolves (sighs) so that is the case of carrie culperson we want to thank everyone um, that has took the time to listen Uh, i know it's a little bit of a, a lengthy episode but it's something that we Wanted to try to give you as much detail as we could about and try to do it justice. Um, This may never find anyone's ears, but in the event that it does, and if someone were to hear this that knows anything, anything at all about the case, please reach out to the police department. Please reach out to Debbie Culberson. I mean, this woman has went almost 25 years now um, waiting for closure for her daughter. And that's a heartbreaking thought. So please, 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 if anyone knows anything at this point, it's so far removed that all this woman is asking for is just closure. Please reach out. Please give that information. Uh, and we'll try to find some some phone numbers and some links that we can post. We have the findcarriecolberson.com website that has the police department's number because it's not the Blanchester Police Department. 
It is Brown County, I Brown think. Brown County, I believe. And it, it has the contact and the person on the case. Yes. So we will post that. And if you have any tips, that would be the person to contact. Yes. And we just want to thank you all for listening. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Uh, you can find us on YouTube and give us a like on Facebook and a follow on Instagram. You can find us under True Crime and Spending Time. Bye, guys.